This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Onwaley. And I'm J. Miles Coleman. So today we are discussing the special elections that occurred on February 21st in Virginia and Wisconsin. Mile has a brand new article out on the crystal ball. Let's start with a special election in Virginia's 4th Congressional District. That seat opened up when Representative Don McEachin passed away suddenly. And State Senator Jennifer McClellan, um, who we should point out, is a graduate of the University of Virginia's School of Law um, and is known both for her policy chops in the state legislature and for her organizing skills, handily won both a firehouse primary and the special election on February 21st. Um, She is making history by becoming the first black woman to represent Virginia in Congress. And this has some implications for women's representation. Uh, Once she is sworn in, there will be 150 women that will serve in the 118th U.S. Congress, which will bring it to a record of 28% of seats. There's 107 Democratic women, um, or 41% of the total Democratic seats, 42 Republican women, and one independent. Um, and uh, once she's sworn in, there will be 28 Black women who will serve in the 118th Congress. Miles, you go into depth and write about her performance. What do we know about how Jen McClellan performed? Before we even get to her performance, one thing I'll kind of say on those stats you are talking about in Virginia, we're going to have three Jennifers in our dad delegation. We're going to have McClellan, uh, Wexton, and uh, Jen Kiggins uh, in the second d- 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 district. Uh, there are no other Jennifers in Congress. So we have three, and we have the monopoly on Jennifers. So I thought that was an interesting stat. District 4, it's been you know more or less in its current form. It was created uh, in the, the mid-decade redistricting we had in 20, 2016. Uh, that's when it first elected Don Mc, McEachin. Um, and, you know, of course, he died last year. Uh, you know, McClellan did seem like a favorite for m- much of the campaign. Uh, and, you know, she really, uh, you know, she did not take this seat for granted. Even the, in the Firehouse primary, she was running a very active campaign. Uh, and that type of work, paid off in the firehouse primary you know it definitely seemed like it paid off um in uh, yesterday's general election you know this is a district that you know last year mcgeechan was was reelected something like 65 35 you know she took that up to almost 75 25 really a big overperformance uh you know this district takes in basically all of richmond proper uh, but it does have some localities that are more rural down in Southside. Uh, she won most of those pretty comfortably. Yeah, I know she definitely sort of made a strong day debut as she enters Congress. Yes. And again, I, I think I mentioned this in the introduction, but she is one of the rare legislators, legislators um, who really does combine um, the skills needed both on 
uh, policy chops and and organizing. Um, and as you noted, you know, she certainly did not take this for granted. Um, and uh, also, I think an interesting note is uh, she she ran to replace Don McEachin in uh, the state Senate as well. <laughs> Just speaking about the other races she ran in, you know, she was a candidate for governor in 2021. Uh, you know, she didn't gain a lot of traction because Meg Olive had basically locked up the Democratic nomination. Uh, but someone was like, well, you know, if the Democrats had run her in 2021, you know, imagine if things would be different. Yeah. Um, and I think you noted this in, in your piece, but she also did really well um, in some of some of the suburban areas of Richmond um, that have trended Republican as well. You know, even just sticking to Richmond proper, you know, this has a piece of Chesterfield County, uh, which, you know, she was, you know, she did, did very well there. Uh, one county in that Richmond area, over the last few decades, it was really one of the most Democratic counties uh, in the state. It is, uh, it is Charles City County. Uh, that's one that's been democratic, but the margins have been going down. Uh, I think she was over 70% there. So, you know, just a strong performance all around. So there was also an election uh, on February 21st in the state of Wisconsin, and that is the most important judicial race of this year, uh, closely divided, um, and control for the state Supreme Court is on the line. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why the stakes are so high in Wisconsin. This is to decide control on the state Supreme Court. Uh, you know, in the state that has decided or has been what we call the tipping point state uh, of the last two presidential elections. So Wisconsin is kind of the quintessential purple state, or at least one of them these days. Um, so kind of how things are in Wisconsin, uh, they have a seven-member uh, state Supreme Court. Um, nominally, the judges are nonpartisan, but, you know, Everyone sort of knows, you know, who's affiliated with which side. Um, the judges have these kind of staggered 10-year terms. Um, the one that is up this year um, is currently held by uh, former Chief Justice uh, Pat Rogensack, who, who is a conservative who is very, very retiring. Why this is important is if you look at the other six members on the court, uh, there are three conservatives and three liberals. So this is the seat that really uh, could decide control. Um, you know, you think of, um, you know, other than the state's Supreme Court, uh, Wisconsin has a Democratic governor. Most of its statewide officials are Democrats, but uh, it has a uh, very Republican legislature. Uh, and there's often some battling back and forth between the legislators and the governor. Um, and, you know, with a more conservative state Supreme Court, uh, that's given the Republicans in the legislature sometimes a leg up. Uh, you know, one of the examples that comes to mind is during the pa pandemic, um, the state's Supreme Court on a party line vote uh, struck down Governor Evers' mask mandate. Uh, you know, there are issues that the court could hear over then the next, you know, within the short term. 
uh, you know, within the next maybe few years about issues like redistricting or abortion, uh, you know, very, you know, you know um, uh, very impactful issues. And this is going to be, you know, if if things are still very party line on the Wisconsin State Supreme Court, this election will be quite decisive. So normally in these uh, in their Supreme Court elections, if there were just two candidates, they would just have the election in April. But because there were two liberal candidates and two conservative candidates, we had this primary. Can you talk a little bit about the four candidates and the outcome? The main Democrat was a Milwaukee area judge named Janet Protasiewicz. There was another uh, another Dane County or Milwaukee or a Madison area judge named Everett Mitchell who did not get much traction. Uh, so it seems like yes, and under these top two rules, uh, it looked like for much of the campaign, Protasiewicz was essentially guaranteed a spot in the top two. Uh, you know, she very, very much ran on against things like gerrymandering, abortion restrictions, etc. cetera. Um, on the Republican side, it was definitely more of a contest. The outgoing Justice Pat Rogensack uh, endorsed uh, a judge named Jennifer Doro, who was from the Milwaukee suburbs, which is basically con- kind of the traditional Republican heartland. Uh, but Doro came up short um, against Daniel Kelly, who is um, actually was a judge on the Supreme Court for a few years. Um, he was appointed in 2016, I'm going to say, but was voted off of the bench in 2020. Uh, it was not particularly close. He lost by 10 points. Uh, you know, after he was de- de- defeated in the spring of 2020, uh, the state party, the state Republican Party of Wisconsin, um, paid him after the 2020 presidential election. You know, he's been alleged of being involved with the uh, fake elector scheme. You know, trying to uh, trying to subvert the 2020 pres- presidential election. You know, it's 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 um. Almost like last year, where you had Democrats across the country uh, try to promote these election deniers in these races. Anyway, it looked like Kelly was ended up getting that second spot basically on his strength in the rural area. Someone showed me a good chart yesterday. Uh, it looked like spending on both the Democratic and the Republican side was about even. Uh, I thought that's interesting considering, you know, if you combine uh, the liberal candidates vote share against the vote share that the conservatives got, the Democrats came about eight percentage points ahead. So, you know, we'll see if that holds uh, when we go to the second round in April. And I believe it's been one of the most expensive Supreme Court election, state Supreme Court elections so far um, and is set to break records um, uh, in April as well. Campaign finance reports that were filed with the Wisconsin Ethics Commission show that Janet Protasiewicz uh, has raised nearly $1.9 million uh, since she got into the race 
in 2022. Uh, That's about half a million more than the campaigns of her other rivals, her three other rivals combined. Um, 235,000 of Protasiewicz's total came from large donations she reported just in the last week before before the primary election. And from that, 206,000 came from out-of-state donors. Dan Kelly, who ended up winning the second most votes in the primary election on February 21st, has raised a total of 415,000 since he launched his campaign. Yes, that sounds about right. I mean, especially, you know, I mean, especially, you know, since it's for control of the court, even though judicial races and, you know, the typical partisan races are different, no, they're becoming more similar. You know, if you look at uh, where the Democratic line candidates got their votes, you know, it looks like we're basically a partisan Democrat. Uh, would do well in statewide races for the most part. You know, I think election spending, you know, that's another way that these judicial races are becoming more like, you know, an actual partisan race. Sure. The Wisconsin Supreme Court race is set to be one of the most expensive state Supreme Court races in American history. Um, Ad Impact has tracked more than $6 million spent in TV ads alone. I also thought it might be interesting to point out uh, how a family has been divided with their giving in Wisconsin. Um, among the millions being flung at the Supreme at the state Supreme Court election, the Olhine family um, has been giving on both sides. Um, Richard and Elizabeth Olhine. In this election, they gave 40000 of their own personal fortune to support Daniel Kelly, um, and they gave an additional $2 million more into the Supreme Court race through an outside group, Fair Courts America. In the opposite direction, Lindy Bradley Olhine, um, who is another heir to the Schlitz Brewing Empire, she has given about $20,000 of her money to Judge Protasiewicz um, and has donated $200,000 to Democratic groups in the past year, um, as well as $250,000 to A Better Wisconsin Together. Yes, that's, you know, that's a very Wisconsin story. I'll say that. <laughs> One other note uh, for one other note um, in the crystal ball that that you bring up is that Representative Dave, Representative David Cicilline has announced that he'd be resigning from Congress on June first. Um, you're saying that that's a still going to likely be a safe blue seat. Any other thoughts on that race? Yeah, you know his um, you know his resignation isn't going to be effective for you know at least uh, uh, at least a few more months. Uh, you know, Rhode Island's first district is the more democratic of the state's two seats. You know, it it, it was almost uh, almost sort of a surprise that Rhode Island kept its two seats in the last census. It was really expected to uh, drop down to an at-large seat. Uh, kind of the uh, kind of the meme on Twitter when that was announced a few years ago was uh, Gina Raimundo, who's Secretary of Commerce. You know, she's the one who kind of intervened and saved Rhode Rhode Island because that's that's where she was governor. You know, whether you believe that or not, I don't know. But uh, so yeah, it is. Uh, what I'm interested to see is you know there are definitely no shortage of Democrats. Uh, who could run for that Rhode Island seat when it opens up. Uh, So, you know, are they going to be like Jennifer McClellan uh, and really put in the extra effort uh, to, you know, 
win that seat in such a commanding fashion. I'll segue back very quick, quickly to Wisconsin because I thought this was also uh, worth mentioning. Um, you know, one other reason that it um, that these judicial elections seem to be looking more like partisan races um, is that in a lot of elections for Senate and and governor over the last few cycles, we've seen very high turnout. Uh, well, in the primary last night, uh, you had almost a million votes being cast, which um, which really smashes a lot of the previous records. Uh, for some context, um, in 2020, uh, when they had a similar Supreme Court primary in February, uh, only about 700,000 votes were cast. Uh, so I think, you know, um, whoever... You know, whoever ends up winning in April, it's probably going to be another very high turnout state Supreme Court race. The crystal ball doesn't track uh, party elections, um, but I thought I would also just make note of a couple recent party chairmanship elections for our listeners um, that, that have occurred and may have some consequences for the direction, especially of the Republican Party. Um, over the weekend, a very contentious election, um, uh, in a very contentious election, Republicans in Michigan voted to make Christina Caramo, who has yet to concede the 2022 Secretary of State race as their next party chair. And so Republicans have now put an election denier at the head of the party in a crucial battleground state. Um, Caramo, to Caramo uh, told the crowd, um, we do fight to secure our elections. It's the reason I did not concede after the 2022 election. Why would I concede to a fraudulent process? Um, she even raised questions about uh, the party chair election process at the time. Um, it's also worth noting that Caramel edged out another election denier for the party chair position by being an overt Christian nationalist. Um, also, uh, this last week in Kansas, Mike Brown was elected as the Republican Party chair. He ran ads last year in his bid for Secretary of State that questioned the 2020 election um, and raising questions about an already debunked voting machines contributing to election fraud. Um, moving on to Florida, Christian Ziegler is the new chair of the Florida Republican Party. Um, he is not an outright denier. Um, he has said that he wants to move past 2020. However, he was at the January 6th rally in Washington, uh, but then condemned the actions at the Capitol that day later on. And then finally, in Arizona, just three weeks ago, Jeff DeWilt, who was a former uh, top Trump official, was elected party chairman there. Um, he beat an outright election denier um, and is also someone who has overtly gone out of his way to not answer questions about whether the 2020 election was legitimate or not. Um, so not usually elections that we have traditionally tracked, but thought I would note that that's something we should be watching for um, as, you know, there are questions about what the, the future of the Republican Party, whether or not it has moved beyond Trump, and whether or not the big lie continues to, to ripple throughout the party. Well, one thing I'll say kind of very fast on that, you know, it, uh, it's more on the Democratic side, work in North Carolina. Uh, the Democrats, within the past week or so, uh, had their election for party party chair, um, and they elected a woman named Anderson Clayton, who was 25 years old, is a state party chair in a state of 10 million people. Uh, so you know, I think part of that is you know, 
you know, definitely she seemed to run a very good campaign in terms of uh, uh, reaching out to those within the par party. Uh, but in North Carolina, you know, it is a you know light red state where Democrats have just come up short in a lot of recent contests for Senate and president. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's the Democrats here who kind of, you know, maybe want to try some something different. Uh, so I thought that was a very interesting kind of result along those lines. Definitely. Well, Miles, as always, it's good talking with you. All right. Yes, this was very good. See you next time. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara Ong Wigley. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faze. You can learn more about the Center for Politics on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. Until next time.